Hello and welcome to another Real World Data Science interview. I'm Brian Tarrant and today I'm joined by Stephanie Hare, a researcher and broadcaster and author of the book Technology is Not Neutral, A Short Guide to Technology Ethics, which is the focus of our conversation today. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me here. I feel I'm a bit late to the party with the book. I mean, the Financial Times picked it up as one of the best books of summer 2022, but I've only just got around to reading it. I mean, I only just got around to reading War and Peace last year, so there's no rush with these things. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I can definitely say it's one of the best books I've read in spring 2023, if that helps. And the only other one I read was uh, Lord of the Rings. So Wow. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty August company to be <laughs> yeah. keeping. I, you couldn't tell me more. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, um, I actually thought uh, sort of coming late to the book might actually have been of benefit to me as a reader because, you know, you're talking about technology ethics quite broadly. Uh, but then you focus in on a couple of, of use, use cases specifically around facial recognition technology, uh, COVID-19 exposure, tracking apps and things like that. But, you know, obviously, since the book was published, the whole discussion around technology ethics has kind of been dominated, maybe, or taken on a new dimension following the launch and, and adoption of, of chat GPT. Mm. Um, I wonder, you know, when you, you know, when the, 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 the technology was launched, people started using it, adoption rates, you know, went through went through the roof what was your kind of initial reaction to all that and, and what have you made of the kind of conversations and criticisms that have have followed well I mean like everybody I was curious and fascinated and wanted to play around with it a bit I don't think I'm I'm of the school of thought that seems to be circulating that this will either you know destroy mankind as we know it or take everybody's jobs or potentially upend civilization um, there's been some quite extreme <laughs> some quite extreme views put across in the media in the past few months since this was widely released to the public. Um, I don't know. Uh, for some reason, I don't. I didn't drink the Kool Aid when I started working in technology, so I always take these things with a grain of salt. And I guess my my cautionary note to anybody listening to this is, you know, at this time last year, all of my clients were wanting presentations and analysis about Web three and nfts and cryptocurrency and you know before that it was blockchain there's like always a sort of flavor of the month ai for people who worked in this field is known to have winters summers springs autumns you know these seasons of when it's like coming on and really exciting or not i'm more excited by deep minds use of artificial intelligence i think they're actually working on interesting problems right around like protein discovery like real science as opposed to like oh look i can like have a new sci-fi avatar or do a deep fake. You know, people have been doing deep fakes already. We're just doing them now in even more disturbing ways. Um, so I guess I guess it's that. I'm intrigued by it, but I don't I don't feel the need to sort of freak out um, either way, positively or negatively. I have a much more sort of detached satellite level view, I think, probably just because I'm older. <laughs> I've seen these trends come and go. And it's like, let's just let's just wait this out and you know see how it goes. From your perspective, as someone who's interested in researching in the area of technology ethics, right? It, it, do, do you do you see a kind of um, almost a benefit that, it, that the conversation around this has put technology ethics, the conversation around that, on the map, or do you worry that we kind of obsessing over this one technology and this one application, we're not looking at the the kind of the field more broadly? Well, there's a few things to say on this. So, like, first of all, a couple of weeks ago, a bunch of people working in AI, about a thousand plus people, including some fictitious people, by the way, signed this this letter calling for a moratorium on AI research for six months, um, which was like 
unenforceable, clearly not going to happen, was signed by Elon Musk, who then very quickly announced he was developing his own rival to OpenAI, the company that invented ChatGPT. So, you know, you take all of that with a grain of salt. But again, if you're if you're an historian or if you just have a long memory, you'll remember that there have been several letters like this. There's always somebody, you know, very big wig people. It's not, it's not that we want to dismiss it, but Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk were warning, you know, over around 10 years ago that AI was going to kill humanity if we didn't put guardrails on it. Um, Professor Stuart Russell talked about this in his wreath lectures a couple of years ago, which are still online and you can listen to them. And, you know, he's not an alarmist. He's a serious person and a serious thinker. So we want to listen to him. But I guess what I'm just saying is, you know, every time some sort of new technology or a new use case for technology comes up, there's a group of people who come out and freak out and they get lots of op-eds. It's usually men, I must say. Um, there's a lot of women doing some really interesting scholarship in this area that don't get the op-eds and quite quite the publicity. So there's that. Then it is interesting because it makes people think about technology ethics, usually, again, from a place of either fear, right? Are they going to kill us? Are they going to take our jobs? Are they going to remove human agency or money? How are people going to make a huge amount of money? Um, who's going to make the money in, 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 by displacing whom, right? So we have two levers, sort of incredible doom or incredible opportunity. And that leaves the rest of us, I think, probably somewhere in the middle, scratching our heads and going like, is this going to actually change my life? And if so, how? And do I really care? Given that I've got like, you know, a cost of living crisis, recovering from COVID pandemic for the past few years, like if you're not in this world, it can seem like a lot of shouting. There's also the question of, do we need new laws? So we know that the European Union has the AI Act coming down the pipe. That's supposed to be passed this year, and there'll be a two-year implementation grace period. So that's interesting. It doesn't cover stuff really um, like ChatGPT specifically, but then I don't know if you want good regulation to cover the technology itself or how technology is used. And I talk about this in my book, like, do you want to regulate forks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a tool, or do you want to regulate use cases for forks? So if I'm, if I stab you or kill you with a fork, which is totally possible, um, that is something that we've regulated. We've been like, we've regulated the use case, if you will, of murder <laughs> or of injury with a fork or frankly, any other tool. So it's the use case we focused on. We don't really regulate forks. We do regulate some technologies like bioethics technologies um, or biomedical technologies, excuse me, sort of human genetic stuff, anything nuclear. That Those technologies we do specifically regulate. So we just need to think about where does AI fit with that? And also, do we need new regulations for everything or can we use existing ones? And that's what's becoming really interesting is that in the US where I'm from, the main regulator, the FTC, seems to think that it can use a lot of existing laws already. So they've been like, if you, if your AI is claiming to do stuff that it can't, we're going to come after you under like kind of sort of false advertising, if you will, misrepresenting yourself. They might come after some of the big AI companies based on anti-competition law, right? So no, no new, no, no new laws needed for that. And then with the music industry. They've been going after all the people who are like, oh, let's like remix a Drake song um, and saying, well, actually, you can't do that because you're violating copyright law. Take it down. Right. So, again, I don't want to be like too, too calm about it. Like we do need to look at some of the use cases um, that are really problematic and hurting people. But we might actually have a lot more in our arsenal to combat this than we're currently using. And I think what's going to happen is, unfortunately, the pace of crafting legislation and then Regulators never fully enforce 
you know, regulations like the GDPR. No company's ever been given the full fine. Um, and here in the UK, the ICO is like famous for letting companies off the hook, giving them less than half of the original fine. Um, it's ridiculous. So if you're going to pin your hopes on regulation, I'm not sure that's great. I'm weirdly more optimistic about landmark legal cases. So we're seeing an Australian mayor who was totally defamed by ChatGPT in Australia. He's going to be taking or is taking um, OpenAI to court. And then we might see some of these um, copyright issues that could be taken to court, right? And like, that's where people I think will get more action and frankly, more respect because these companies are really happy to pay a lot of money to lobby our lawmakers and water step down. And they always say, oh my God, it's going to constrain innovation. And if they really get desperate, they'll be like, China, <laughs> if we don't, if we're not allowed to do everything we want, China will win. Um that is like a that is just a game that takes everybody nowhere. Whereas in the lawsuit angle, that's interesting because you're demonstrating responsibility, you're discussing liability, you're having to demonstrate harm. And in the process of discovery, right, you might be able to actually get some of these companies to open up their data sets, how their algorithms work. Like I'm much more intrigued to see where that's gonna go. Yeah. But I think I mean having having read your book. I would I would have thought you might perceive all of this sort of stuff as kind of sticking plasters to put over the uh, the injuries that might be caused by these technologies. Right? Your, your your argument seems to be that we have an issue whereby we don't have a culture of technology ethics. So when we're thinking about building these tools, or you know when we're starting off the, down the down the path of creating something like this, we're not already thinking about you know, the, the, the use cases, the harms that might arise from that and things like that. How, what does it take to build a, a culture of technology ethics, do you think, in our society, in our academic institutions, in our companies? Honestly, I think I think this whole accountability piece is going to be what it takes because you see like Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai gave an interview recently to CBS uh, 60 Minutes in the US where he was like, yeah, there's a risk that this technology could get out of control like dot, 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 this would be terrible for mankind. And you seem kind of be like, hope somebody does something about that. And it's like, I know somebody that might do something about that, Mr. Pichai, you. But clearly he he feels, and you can see his point, he feels that right now, if it's not illegal, then it's permissible. And he has to win market share. If he doesn't do it, he's going to lose. And companies have this all the time. If they wait too long, they lose their first mover advantage and they get destroyed. We can go through like countless examples of that in business, particularly in technology. So I get it. But what he isn't understanding is that if his company is the one that puts out the technology that leads to terrible harm, you know, physically killing people, harming them, um, destroying a national security infrastructure or something like that. Right now, I don't think he's thinking about how that's going to affect him. And that's because we don't really penalize executives very often. The worst that might happen is they might leave with a huge golden parachute um, and go off and sort of retire in Hawaii with their millions, right? Like nothing really happens to them. So how do you have a culture of technology ethics where the people who are creating technology and who have the power to stop, right, to maybe like back off on stuff, they aren't really thinking about how will I personally be held responsible if this goes south. So like Sam Altman and OpenEye, same thing. He was like, he gave an interview where he's like, I'm really scared about this technology I'm building. It's like, okay, you could, you could slow down or back off. You could make your data sets open. You could make your algorithms open. <laughs> You're called open AI. That was supposed to be your whole mission. Why you were created was to benefit humanity. Like, what are you doing? So it's weird. 
And I think it comes from the fact that, you know, move fast and break things was the mantra for this culture for a really long time, at least out of the U.S., and it made a lot of people a lot of money and they got worshipped by the media and you know they have a whole audience of bros who are fans of them. And they've never really, any of them, been held to account for what they've built. Your, so your, your interest in technology ethics clearly predates you know, all, the, all the noise at the moment around large language models and generative AI and things like that. What was it that got you interested in this subject? What was the, was it a, was it a, a, a particular application, something that caused some concern or how, how did it come about? Uh, this is going to sound completely weird, but it didn't come from my my experience in tech really at all. I, w- I have had two paths in my adult life. One has been working in these technology companies um, with a brief but happy foray in political risk, uh, which is now sort of part of the skill set for tech. But I trained as an historian and I interviewed someone who was a French civil servant who at the end of his life was put on trial for crimes against humanity for his actions as a young civil servant during the Second World War. So he collaborated, as so many French civil servants did. And in the course of that collaboration, over a period of many years, went from just, you know, just signing documents and kind of doing what he was told to do, to deporting people and sending them to Auschwitz. So I was very young when I interviewed him, and that marked me, um, as I would hope it would mark anybody. I talked with him on and off for about three years until he died. And that was the subject of my PhD. And then I did a fellowship at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and spent years looking at it further. And that's actually going to be my next book. I needed a long time to sit with that material and to read around it, but I had to get the interview while he was still alive because he was so old. He was 93 when I started talking to him, so it was important to get that get that down for posterity's sake first, and then circle back and do some analysis later when I was a bit older. Um, when you talk to somebody who, in his case, was you know not anti-Semitic, not of the far right politically, was actually like center left, had lots of Jewish friends, et cetera, was like top of his class, you know, came from a, a milieu and a background and a formation that I think many of us would read and be like, okay, that seems pretty reasonable. You ask yourself, how on earth did that person and his like, young period of his late 20s, early 30s, end up being involved and actively participating in what ends up being mass murder. It's probably the most extreme case study of ethics or one of the most extreme case studies of ethics that I could have stumbled upon. Um, and it it stayed with me. And to be honest, it shapes a lot of my work and how I think about human rights and civil liberties and the freedoms that we so often take for granted, because I've studied it as, a, as an historian looking at France and Germany, how quickly those things can can be taken away, very quickly, terrifyingly so, in fact. So that lens is always with me. And when I was then working in technology and seeing some of the things that could be done with these tools and watching this lack of accountability, um, down to the point of you know gross negligence in some cases, and also as a young technologist, not being given any training, uh, we were given no training at all in ethics, in like discussing data protection. It was basically this is the law, just obey the law. Like that's the that's the box that you have to play in. Other than that, like go for it. And when I look back and then now, it's like oh my god, that's the equivalent of you <laughs> putting your family in the car and everybody goes off without wearing their seatbelts on, and you know all the sort of safety design that we take for granted in cars now. It's just mad when you think about it or the way we used to fly. We're in this phase. It's really interesting just over the course of my career, um, 25 years, where 
the stuff that we're talking about today that dominates the headlines, right, that is dominating the discussion in the tech sector was not discussed at all at the turn of the century, other than by maybe people in the science and technology studies domain or academics. But it wasn't filtering into boardrooms. It wasn't on the front pages of newspapers and it wasn't being covered in the national news. Whereas like now that is all I'm doing. So it's it's amazing. A whole field has sprung up. I think that 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 kind of origin story, if you like, explains some of your uh, perhaps belief in the in the importance of exploring this accountability question when it comes to technology ethics. Yeah, because I watched it, and I think what was so fascinating. So as I say, I was in my I was in my early twenties. In fact, I was twenty when this man was put on trial, and I had just moved to France. Um, it was the longest trial in French legal history. It was a big deal. You could not not watch it. So I was reading this and seeing it in the press every day, and I watched the French people discussing it around me, you know, really being divisive. This stuff does not go away. And his view was, I was just following orders. I was doing what I was told to do, which, you know, you hear that a lot from engineers or people who are like, this is the design spec I've been given, or this is what my boss has told me to do, or this is what our investors want, etc." Or people feel they don't have the power to stand up because you know what, they've got a mortgage, they've got kids, and employers know that. Right? Like they know that they they use that as leverage against people to silence them, or they've got it. You know, they've signed an NDA because we get made to sign these NDAs when we work in tech, and then we get made to sign another NDA when we leave, right? So we can't disparage our employer. Maybe we're given some money so we don't talk about the things we've seen. Uh, you know, it's it's gross. It's a gross little world, and like you have to be very very uh, solid and take good care of yourself to work in it. I reckon to try and keep your ethical moral compass. It's hard. So I think because I saw that, and I saw that someone who, whether we believe him or not, this is what he claimed in his in his 30s, he was just doing kind of what everybody around him was doing under a situation of crisis. Um, he was let off the hook. I mean, he wasn't just not persecuted in 1945. He was actually promoted. And then he became France's top civil servant. And then he became an MP, and then he became budget minister. I mean, this guy's career was not hurt in any way by what he did. On the contrary, right? He advanced. And yet by the end of his life, French values had changed. So a new generation wanted to hold him to account. And I think about that a lot for all of us, right? Who are sort of walking around in our 30s or 40s. Another generation or two, when we're older, might look at some of what technology we've built or our behavior on climate change, our track record, did we do what we could have done to to slow global warming, to improve biodiversity? And they might, they might hold us to account saying you could have stopped this and you didn't, right? It's not just what you did, it's what you did not do, right? So we have to be super careful when we think about ethics because ethics change, values change over time. And what seems okay today may not be okay in 10, 20, 30 years time. And we might be the 80 or 90 year olds who are put on trial. That is on my mind all the time, right? It's very relaxing. No, and I guess it makes me think, well, I mean, this is getting into the hypotheticals, right? But is it, if we if we can't necessarily predict or um, plan out how values might evolve over time, is it enough to be able to to just say or to document that we asked the right questions at the time rather than just doing things blindly? Is, is that where we need to kind of almost formalize our process of writing down, setting out, you know, we, we want to do this. We've invested, we've considered these potential harms. We've considered these potential benefits and we kind of document that. So at least, you know, 
future generations can say, well, they they thought about it. They might not have thought about it in the right way, but they they tried. Absolutely. I think, you know, show your work and be like, these were our, you know, these were our sort of first principles is where, where we were starting from. This is the context in which we are making this decision. Because again, I don't, I don't necessarily fear the judgment of history in terms of if I get something wrong. People get stuff wrong on the time. That's just being human. It's, did I not care? You know, was I like, well, sorry, little little boys and girls who are babies now. Like, I need to do my stuff and like, I don't care about you, right? Like that, that attitude is tough. Or I decided I just really, you know, I really needed to buy a flat. So I decided to work for some dodgy company or a dodgy, dodgy company that's owned by a foreign government, but I knew it was going to be fine. And they're offering me a ton of money and now I can go on nicer holidays. Like I've had these conversations with people about this literally this past week. Like these are live issues for people. Um, there's a cost of living crisis. Ethics can feel like a luxury for some people rather than a necessity. And human beings are very bad, all of us, at thinking about, you know, future selves, right? Like we kind of, we optimize for how we're feeling now. Um, and we'll deal with it. <laughs> we'll deal with 20 years from now later if we even get there. So I think there's that. There's also, um, this really inspired the writing of the book, Technology is Not Neutral. I knew I had this weird sense. Um, I had just gone independent. So I had left working for these companies. I was not under any, any NDAs anymore, uh, which right there gives you a clue. I could say what I wanted, but I also knew there was a chance that I was going to have to go back either into industry or maybe work for a government. Um, I don't know what I'm going to need to do in the future or who I'm going to want to work with or what what reasons I might even have for that. But I knew I had this window of being an independent researcher and broadcaster that I could say whatever I wanted. And it was that I had that thing of like, okay, if you had a window of say five years, for example, what would you say if you were not afraid, if you were not scared, if you were like, you know, screw the money, screw the, <laughs> screw the corporate pressure, screw the government, um, whatever, what do you want to talk to the public about? And my views were, I really wanted to talk to them about facial recognition because I feel people just fundamentally do not understand how dangerous that technology is and how it can be used. Um, I wanted to talk about the pandemic technologies because we were, you know, I was writing it during the pandemic and I thought, well, if a pandemic ever happens again, let's have a nice little tidy case study for <laughs> potentially future historians or future medical personnel, public health officials to pull out because when the pandemic hit, we all had to go back and look at stuff from the Spanish flu. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion of like, why has this come as such a surprise? Are we going to use these technologies again or not, right? Like, you know, is it worth it? Is the return on investment worth it in all senses, ethically as well as medically, all of those things? So I thought I'd, I would lay down a couple of markers that I hoped would stand the test of time. But the big thing I wanted to do, because I was always thinking I might have to go and sign another NDA and go work because I too must earn my, my living, was I wanted to write something so that anyone who it cares about technology, is working in it, is investing in it, right? It's not just people who code, it's people who fund the people who code. Um, buying technology, you know, procurement is massive. You're a really powerful person if you're in charge of procurement, but also just consumers and citizens and parents and teachers and kids. If I could write up everything that I had learned in my 25 years, and as succinctly as possible, right, as short as possible, because people are tired, they're busy, I could pass that baton on. So that if I ever have to stop going on television and radio and I'm no longer allowed to write in newspapers and warn people about the stuff I'm seeing and the abuses of power and showing them examples of history of how this can go so terribly wrong, 
maybe it will have like lit somebody else. And I'm delighted to report. I mean, we'll see. Time will tell. It's only been out a year. But the amount of people who have brought me in to train their staff, to talk to their board. Um, I've talked to children. I've talked to university students. I've taught classes all over the world because we can now do online teaching. I've taken a lot of it on television and radio and in the newspapers. People wanted this. Um, and I'm not the only person working on it. Of course, there's a, there's been a whole flowering of people, scholars, etc., working and putting out amazing books and documentaries. It's really, we're having some sort of moment with technology ethics, AI ethics being just a branch of that. So that's really encouraging. So I sort of feel like, you know, again, if I'm, if I'm going to have to account for myself at the age of 93, um, I would like to be able to point to that and go, I tried, you know, I tried. <laughs> I'm not, I have no idea if it will succeed or not, but I stood up to the plate and I swung the bat and, you know, I aimed for the bleachers. One of the things I thought was really interesting about the book uh, comes towards the end when you're kind of talking about, you're sort of summing up and you talk about how you're thinking about almost like the, the the approach or solution to the technology ethics issue has changed over the course of the writing. But you had like a list of um, potential like proposals, proposed actions that you wanted to analyze. But then you realize that actually technology ethics is a, a wicked problem. I wonder if you could explain what that term means for people who might not be familiar with it and, and why you think of it that way. Yeah, I'm so um, grateful to have learned about the term wicked problem. Uh, my friend Jason Crabtree, who wrote an amazing book about electricity grids, like smart electricity grids for Cambridge University Press, had asked me to read his manuscript maybe 10 years ago, and I read it. And the one thing I took away that just you know, absolutely blew my mind was this concept. So I shall gift it to you for those of you who have not heard it. Because then suddenly you're like, God, this makes so much sense. There are certain problems I would say like the climate crisis and biodiversity loss would be a good example of this. Um, there's certain problems that have many causes, many causes. So there isn't going to be one solution to fix them. So people constantly ask me, oh, is this the magic bullet? No, there are, like, there are certain problems that there is no magic bullet. The pandemic's probably another actually. Then if you do try to solve these wicked problems, the mere act of solving them can introduce a whole new set of problems to them. So like it becomes even more of a head, you know, I'm trying not to swear, but a, <laughs> a messing with your head moment. Um, and it's exhausting, you know, and it gives you your forehead wrinkles and makes you just sort of want to bang your forehead onto the, the nearest wall. And yet you also can't opt out and be like, well, that's just too hard. It's a wicked problem. There's no solution. There's nothing to be done. You know, throw up your hands because you're like, yeah, but the problem is, is if we don't do anything, like literally people are dying. Literally climates are becoming un uninhabitable. Um, we're going to have, you know, massive climate migration that's going to cause all sorts of problems. Water scarcity. We can have wars over this. Like we have to do something. So like you have to still act on a wicked problem all while knowing that it's not going to be solved in a binary sense of like zero, one, black and white, I can point to it and measure it. And for people who like metrics, that's a real pain because they're like, I want to know what good looks like. And I want to know how, how we'll know when we get there. You know, what's the percentage? What's the number? And you kind of have to be like, well, with a wicked problem, you might never solve it. Or you won't solve it once. Because again, with something like climate change or pandemics, these are things you're probably going to have to solve again and again and again because it's dynamic and it's constant. You know, we're always going to be managing our relationship with the climate, with the environment. So, you know, we can pick a certain temperature 
or a certain percentage of land mass that, you know, has trees or whatever, and like come up with a little metric for our metric oriented friends, but that's not, you know, that's still not very meaningful. So it's more that when you think of a wicked problem, like facial recognition technologies, like we need to be able to identify people in certain situations. And like, we want that, right? Like we want to be able to catch criminals. We want to be able to catch terrorists if they've managed to pull off a, a terrible act of, of harm to people. But at the same time, do you want to turn your society into a sort of permanent dragnet? Um, do we not care about privacy? If so, like when do we care about privacy and when are we okay with maybe sacrificing that for the greater good? And who decides that? It's really problematic if you live in London, as I do, and your police force, which is using this technology, has admitted, <laughs> you know, they've admitted themselves to being misogynist, institutionally misogynist, homophobic, uh, racist, right? And then we're going to give them a technology that it doesn't work very well on people with certain skin. It doesn't identify people of a certain age as well. It's got all sorts of problems. So you're kind of like, mm. facial recognition is covered a bit under the EU AI Act. But even then, there's like so many loopholes. And the thing is, is if you cite national security, it usually gets waved through because no one wants to be the person who said, I said we couldn't use this technology and then something bad happened. Right. So you err on the side. It's like the precautionary principle. The default is let them use it. We must trust them. Except what do you do if your police force is giving you quite ample evidence not to trust them? Or companies, you know, this is not to bash on the police, by the way, the companies are some of the worst offenders in this area. So that's what I mean about it being a wicked problem is it's out there. It's installed. It's all over the UK. It's definitely all over the US as well. And we don't really have a good framework for it. Yeah. Uh, but then this, this is where we loop back around to the kind of culture, right? Uh, creating a culture of technology ethics is that, you know, we can't just put a checklist in place once, do it, tick it off. Yeah, we've done that for facial recognition technology. We're good to go because there are always new potential use cases for it, new applications, new integrations with different systems that we always need to be thinking every time. Is this the right thing to do or or yeah, I mean, I, I'm still um, I'm still a big fan of checklists, so it's not that I'm anti-checklist, and I'm not saying that you said that, by the way, I'm more thinking aloud. Checklists can still be useful, right? Like whenever I'm in a really bad mood, I'm like, okay, hang on, <laughs> have I slept? Do I need, do I just need a glass of water? Am I hungry? You know, what I think is angry may just be that I skipped lunch. Um, you know, and you can kind of go through those things. And anybody who's had to like troubleshoot why a baby or a small child is unhappy will also have a checklist. You know, what's on the things? Oh, they miss nap time. Where is their bear? That sort of thing. Um, companies need checklists because you're trying to get loads of people on the same, singing from the same hymn sheet. I get that. But what I wanted to get away from was this idea that like one person or one team gets this checklist and maybe it does it once a year, once a quarter, pick your cadence, and everybody else gets a pass. Um, ethics doesn't work that way because, again, ethics is kind of, I think, in the, the wicked problem scenario of like, how do we decide what our values are and how to live them? And how do we know, you know where do we draw the line? And then who, how do you decide if you've gone over the line or not? And all of that, who decides, who decides? Those are really complex questions that mean that really you can't abdicate. Uh, you know, this is in a company's case, it's the CEO, it's the board all the way on down. It has to be baked in to every single employee and also investors mindset. And I was thinking about it in terms of cybersecurity. I once had a colleague who gave me an analogy that I think is helpful. So I'll share it for what it's worth. When you go on to say an oil rig in the North Sea, it's a highly dangerous environment you might be the, the most junior person there 
and you're there for your very first day of work. But if you spot something on that rig that is a health and safety risk, you have to speak up. You're not going to go like, oh, my boss might say something, whatever, because like everybody's life on that rig is depending on everyone having that culture of careful, that's not okay. And that really put me in mind where it was like, oh, wow, we're going to have to like inculcate an entire new mindset. And we think about technology ethics a lot because of technology being the word, we think it must mean like hardware or software. And it's always about coding and it's often you know, guys in hoodies coding. But my preferred method of hacking is culture. Right. So like, again, if we try to just solve everything through regulation and laws like that takes, you know, if you look at the average time it takes to pass a law and then for regulators to enforce it ages, we're talking years, like it's too late. This, these technologies will have moved on. Ditto calls for international treaties. Do it by all means. Have a look at how long it takes most international treaties to get passed and then ratified. And then P.S. what happens when people break them? Really? Right. So like they're important. They're necessary, but they're insufficient. You can act a lot faster if you can get people preventing stuff from being built in the first place. And that means you need to have a culture of people working in technology, both within, within the organizations, whether that's research labs, government, companies, universities, whatever, and on the outside, journalists, you know, academics, thinkers, et cetera, and just the public, an informed public who can see something and do what I just described on the oil rig, like sound the alarm and go, wait a minute, hang on that's not okay. That is That to me feels faster. And I'm way more into prevention than cure <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. So I think like, yes to laws and regulations, yes to treaties, this will be faster. And I think it will be more resilient. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I have to say, uh, wrapping up that I think technology is not neutral is a, is a great place to start to inculcate that that uh, that mind shift that, that that mindset change so stephanie thank you very much for joining us today thank you for having you, me you said you're working on a new book have you got a timeline for that is that or a oh, title no, no. Share that? i am like i am the slowest thinker and writer i'm like the opposite of move fast and break things i'm like move slowly and like think it over maybe maybe several times so i'm just getting started i'll i'll sort of go you know five years it's gonna it's a history book right so this is this is different. I'm having to um, take my classes in French and German right now to get kind of match fit right, okay. in those languages again. And then, you know, I'll be off and writing. But yeah, I hope to have another book out, you know, in five years time. <laughs> well, it, it, well, if my if my the year it took me to read Technology is Not Neutral is any indication in three, four five years time, it will still be relevant today. So uh, that's so, the thing with history. It yeah. always stands the test of time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you again for joining us on Real World Data Science. It's been a pleasure talking to you.